Well, tonight we are stu- starting a brand new series of studies on the Holy Spirit. And uh, as I was thinking and praying about what to, to, to teach about, I felt like this was where the Lord was directing me. And what we're going to do, uh, the, the, this, the topic of this series is just going to be, we're going to be talking about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and I want us to be able to just take our time with it. So I'm, I'm not going to be trying to jam a lot of things in because uh, I want to uh, leave uh, as, whenever possible. I want to leave a little time at the end if anybody has questions or comments or some things like that but we'll, we'll we typically we'll leave those to the end just because it's a little more difficult with the recording and that sort of thing uh, but but uh, we're, we're going to walk through a lot of different things in this series including we're going to talk about who is the Holy Spirit and and we're, we're going to talk about uh, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and we're going to talk about what it means to be filled with the Spirit the baptism of the Holy Spirit and and we're going to be talking about the gifts of the Spirit but when we get to that part, I, I, want to, I want to really talk about the gifts of the Spirit from a very practical standpoint. And I think it may be a little bit different way than what you may have experienced. I hope, I hope it'll be uh, useful to you as we walk through this. And I just want to say this, uh, you know, you, you may have friends or, or acquaintances that are perhaps not as familiar as you with the person in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And, and you, you may know people that are from more traditional denominations and and I just encourage you, why don't you just in, invite them to come and be part of this teaching series? You know, even if they have a church home, but if maybe they're hungry for the Lord, and this might be an opportunity for them to, to discover a, a different dimension in their walk with the Lord. So invite them, and you, let them know it's going to be safe territory. You can tell them that we only use snakes on Sunday morning, and we don't bring them out on, on Wednesday night. This is going to be a safe place. And, and uh, in, uh, of course, you know I'm joking. Um, we are going to bring the snakes out. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Um, so, all right. So if you have your Bible, what I want you to do, I want you to turn to the book of Genesis. We're gonna, that's where we're going to start. Uh, turn to the very first chapter of the book of Genesis. And that's where we're going to begin tonight as we talk about some... Uh, tonight is uh, maybe may have a little bit of a feel of being a little bit jumbled. It's going to be some a little bit of a hodgepodge, some foundational things as we're just talking about a couple of aspects of the Holy Spirit. Um, But we're going to begin reading in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. This is what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. So as we read that, you see that the Holy Spirit is there before the eyes of the reader of the Word of God from the very start of the book. There's only one verse of Scripture in the entire Bible that a person can even vaguely say comes before the first mention of the Holy Spirit. And from the very second verse of the first book of the entire Bible, we have a sense that there is this person called the Holy Spirit. So let's just delve into that a little, a little bit. And, and, and just for, uh, I want to say this, uh, I never quibble with, quibble with people, people in, in common conversation when people are talking and they refer to the Holy Spirit as it. That's not my job to go around correcting people's English or their grammar and that sort of thing. However, uh, properly, we should say, we should refer to him as him or he 
because the Holy Spirit is a person, not a thing. So I just want to say that uh, just right out front. And, and, I, you know, and by the way, if you're ever in a conversation with somebody and somebody calls the Holy Spirit an it, if you try to correct that, and it's probably going to make it difficult for you to have a conversation with them about the actual work of the Spirit. So don't, don't worry. We're going to talk a little bit more tonight about not getting caught up in, in minor details and those sort of things. But, uh, but, but we're, we're going to call him what he is, he or him, because uh, he, he has a personhood. He's the Spirit of God. So as we, read, as we just read that passage in the, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, referring to the Holy Spirit, the, the, the Hebrew word that is used is ruach. And it really has a more, much more guttural sound at the end, but I don't want to make it sound like I'm you know, coughing up a fur ball or something in here. Uh, but, it, but the word is ruach. And if you're writing that, and I encourage, I hope you're taking notes. And as, as we're going through these different lessons, if there's a question that comes to your mind, I hope you, uh, in your notes that you'll write that question so you don't forget. Because if you're like me, you have an excellent memory. It's just really short. And so by the time we finish, you may not remember the question that you had. And so if you're, if you're writing that word ruach in English, it's spelled R-U-A-C-H. Ruach. And, and that word can be translated wind. It can be translated breath. It can be translated spirit. And, and the corollary in the, New, in the Greek New Testament is the Greek word pneuma. P-N-E-U-M-A. Pneuma, from which we get a lot of English words, which also, by the way, also can be translated wind, breath, or spirit. Uh, and, and we get a lot of English words that, that are based on the Greek word pneuma. For example, pneumonia is an affliction of what? Your lungs or your, or your breath, your air. Uh, or you've got pneumatic tools, and they operate on the power of what? Compressed air. So it's, it's like a wind. So uh, we, we have these things, and you, you see the, these words being used in different ways in the Old and New Testament, and sometimes it brings a little confusion. Uh, like in the, in the King James New Testament, in the, at the death of Jesus, it says that Jesus yielded up the ghost, uh, or, the, or gave up the ghost. And there, there's a lot of confusion around that word ghost. And uh, a, a ghost is a spirit, though, and so that's just an Old English way to translate that he, that he surrendered his spirit. He gave up the ghost. What, what, what does it mean? It means he dismissed his spirit from his body. It means he also can mean that he breathed his last breath because spirit and breath are all the same words. So, but, but really, either one of those, it, it all really means the same thing. It means that he died physically. In, in fact, you'll still hear people today, usually from, a, from an older generation, who refer to death as giving up the ghost. And if it's, my, if it's the same as my experience, you know, it's often your car <laughs> that gave up the ghost. You know what I'm talking about. So the two words in Greek, pneuma, wind, breath, spirit, or in Hebrew, ruach, wind, breath, or spirit. And then in the, in the Hebrew, you combine that with the word kadosh, which means holy. So it's ruach kadosh, which is the Holy Spirit, the, the breath of God or the wind of God. So what do we see in this passage from Genesis then? Well, it is a scene and this creation moment. It's a scene from George Lucas's most extravagant fantasy, the, the abyss, the boiling, troubled, seething nothingness, no order, no light, no structure, 
the, the nothingness of nothing. And moving over all of that was the Holy Spirit. Now, the English translation that we read said that the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. And different translations translate a different way. We'll get into that a little bit more in a moment. But, but the problem with that is when you read things like this often, the problem is that English is a little bit of a flat language. Hebrew uh, has a, is a little bit more nuanced. It has a little more, uh, a little more, a few more facets often in different words. English, for example, English is a great language for engineering because it's very precise, it's very flat, it's very to the point. But sometimes English is not a great language for theology. And so the word moving it, in English, it doesn't tell you anything about the emotion. When, when I use the word English, uh, when I use the word English, the English word move, I, I can say I move from here to there, but it doesn't tell you anything about how I feel in that situation. However, suppose that there's a young mother and her two-year-old uh, child is lost somewhere in the house and she moves from room to room calling out, Johnny, Johnny, where are you? Where are you? You, you could say that she is brooding from room to room. And in my view, and far be it from me to argue with any translator of the, of the Bible because they're far more educated than I. But in, in my view, the, the word moving uh, probably it should be properly rendered brooding, which, which the word moving in the Hebrew has that sense to it, that sense of brooding. And many translations will also, they'll, they'll use the word hover. Um, I don't like that as much because it sounds like a helicopter. <laughs> it's just kind of weird to me. But, but the Hebrew word carries with it the idea of the Holy Spirit brooding, restless, uh, seeking, searching over the surface of the waters, moving, searching restlessly, just brooding. And then inside the closed society of the Godhead, the, the Trinity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, Inside that divine society of three, one of the functions of the Holy Spirit between the Spirit of God and God the Father is that he reports to God the Father. So, so he is brooding over this, this, this formless creation and he's saying, this is not like us. This is not like us. We are light and order and creativity and power and holiness. And this is dark and seething. This is the boiling abyss. So this is going on inside the, the Godhead and the Holy Spirit is brooding restlessly. Now, don't ever let that picture get out of your mind because that idea, that picture is, an, is, is actually characteristic of one of the major functions of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is constantly brooding, searching, and seeking, mo moving restlessly, not, not just in a church setting like this, but, but, but certainly here in a, in a church setting, certainly in, in churches all over the world, but He is also moving throughout all the world. There, there is no crack house in Memphis where the Holy Spirit is not there right now hovering over that violent, chaotic abyss brooding from room to room, seeing the sin and the wickedness and the addiction and the destruction and, and the brokenness that's there. 
and he's reporting inside to God the Father, this is not like us. This is not like us. This is dark. Send the light. This is chaotic. Send order. This is unregenerate. Send creativity until finally, as in the day of creation, the pressure builds within the God, within the God the Father, and he says, all right, let there be light, and the light comes upon them. Imagine the explosion of that moment when in that darkness God spoke and said, let there be light, and there was light. Steven Spielberg in his wildest imagination could not ever reproduce anything like that moment. However, that moment actually begins with the Spirit of God brooding, restless over the surface of the waters, constantly reporting to the Father. Now, we do not know how the unregenerate darkness, how the uncreative abyss, felt, how it felt when God says, let there be light. We have no recording of any kind of emotional response. I'm not saying there was one, but, but I'm saying that to say this. Upon the darkened life, when the Holy Spirit broods and hovers over that life and invades and reports to God inside the Trinity because that, that life is not just an abyss of darkness, but it is a person so the personhood of the Spirit of God brooding over a darkened life, there is a sense of something happening. We call it conviction. That person feels the Holy Spirit's activity on that darkened life. He or she senses it. And can I say this? It does not feel very good. It doesn't feel good to us. In fact, I always tell, I tell people all the time, if they're praying for somebody to get saved and they're praying that the Holy Spirit would convict them of their sin, I always tell them, listen, don't get discouraged when they get grumpy on you. Because when the Holy Spirit begins to bring conviction to them, when the Holy Spirit get, begins to brood in their life in a sense, that, that is not a comfortable thing. That is not something that feels good to us. And it's, be, it's because we can grow accustomed to the darkness in which we live. And in that moment, the light feels invasive. The light feels invasive. I can be so used to death and violence that, that, so that order and creativity and discipline causes me to wince and to push back against it. Just the sense that something is happening. I mean, can, you, can any of you remember when you weren't a Christian? You know, the older I, older I get, the harder it is to remember. Um, but, uh, but, but can you remember any of you standing at that moment, that moment where you're standing in the back row or sitting in the back row of a church building or maybe a camp meeting situation and and there's somebody there, some preacher is giving the altar call and you're standing there and you're saying to yourself, I don't believe this. I, I, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in salvation. I don't, I don't want this. I don't want my life to change. I want to stay where I am. And, and nevertheless, you find yourself gripping the pew in front of you until your knuckles are turning white and you're resisting. What, I, I would ask, are, are you resisting? If it isn't real... Why is it bothering you so much? That is the exerted pressure of the scout of God. Now, when we talk about the Holy Spirit and the Trinity, there's a way in which I can explain to you, and this is going to sound very strange to you, I, I, I can explain to you the character and nature of the Trinity, and you, you can't fully understand that. It's beyond our comprehension, but I can explain it as lawyers. 
And I know that sounds like completely bonkers, uh, unless you're a lawyer, because then you think, oh yeah, of course, but follow me here. The Holy Spirit is God's lawyer with us. He is the paraclete, John tells us, the counselor, and, and, and that's another word for a lawyer, you know. Uh, often when somebody is in court and they're talking to their attorney, somebody will say, well, they'll, they'll call him, counselor, do you have anything to say? Or something like that. The, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, is God's counselor and counsel with us. Jesus, Jesus put, puts it in that way. He said that he will teach you. He will talk to you. He will challenge you. He will rebuke you. He will comfort you. And the Holy Spirit, we know, is also called the comforter. And that's part of this whole process. Uh, you, you, how many, you, you see all these legal trials involving famous people? You know, I mean, not too long ago, it was the big thing was Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. And that was the big thing all over everywhere. But anyway, you see some famous person indicted, some charge, whatever. And uh, after the indictment, they come walking down the courthouse steps. And because they're famous, all of the paparazzi out there, and they're snapping pictures and trying to get that shot. And, and as they walk down those steps, you'll see the, the lawyer, you know, with his or her arm around his client. And they're, they're just pushing their way through the crowd. And the lawyer the whole time is just whispering in, in his or her client's ear and saying, don't say anything. Don't say anything. I've got this. I've got this. Then he looks at the crowd and says, we look forward to having our day in court where I will prove that my client is as pure as the driven snow. You know, they always say something like that, right? Uh, and, and actually, that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit with us. He is God's lawyer with us. He pleads God's case and he comforts us. Now, now don't get confused. Who is our, who is our lawyer with God? Jesus, all right, you're, all, you're good, you're on top of it. So, so, so you can actually explain the, the uh, second two persons of the Trinity as lawyers. And lawyers love that, but everybody else hates it. <laughs> Jesus is my lawyer with God, and the Holy Spirit is God's lawyer with me. Now I want you to look at a second verse of Scripture. We're going to stay in Genesis, and if you will, turn to chapter 2. I want to read verse 7. Genesis 2, 7 says this. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. We're going to talk a little bit, a little bit more in depth about this next week, but, but remember what I said about that Hebrew word ruach? Remember it can be translated breath or spirit or wind? So, 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 you know, when we talk about the Holy Spirit brooding over the face of the waters, you could, you could even, may possibly even translate that as the wind blew, but to include the, the sense of the word, it would be the wind blew with longing and aching. And in fact, there are a few translations, that, not very many, but a few translations that talk about and translate that as the, in Genesis chapter 1 as, the, as the, 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 the Spirit, the wind blowing over the waters. But, but, uh, but here in this passage, it says that God created man. And when God formed man, his body was perfectly formed. And, and just by, on a side note, I do not know if he had a be belly button for sure or not. <laughs> uh, people, people who want to try to stump you, they'll always try to throw in some trivial question and try to make it sound like this is a big philosophical debate. And it's like, who cares if Adam had a belly button or not? Um, 
And you're like, what are you talking about? Well, he wasn't born. He was created. So did he have a belly button? We don't know. And we don't care. It doesn't matter to us. It makes no difference. But so God formed man. Sorry, I got on a, I've never been on a belly button tangent before, but I've just now I've been on one. But God formed man and his body is perfectly formed. All of the internal organs are there. Everything is present. However, something is missing. Personhood is missing. Life is missing. And this passage is uh, an example of something that's called an anthropomorphism. Say that five times fast. Uh, but an anthropomorphism is a, is a kind of a humanoid picture of God. The Bible uses it all the time. Uh, any place in Scripture where you read about God having human-like characteristics, like it talks about the hand of God, or if it talks about the eyes of God, or talks about, in a few moments, we're going to talk about the finger of God. All of these are, are uh, anything, anything like that where, where it uses a human part and describes God in a humanistic, human-like type of way. That is an anthropomorphism because God does not have a physical body. It's just a picture to help us understand something that's going on because but we know god is not a man god is a spirit he doesn't have a body like we do so what's happening here we see that the same spirit because it's the same word ruach the breath that's breathed in is the same word as what's used in genesis chapter one the same spirit that brooded over the face of the waters now comes inside of adam and and, and becomes not simply wind but becomes the breath of life which, by the way, I, I know that one of the popular things that people, you know, anti-life uh, people, pro-abortion people like to, they, uh, one of the new arguments they like to throw out there is, well, the Bible says that life, that life begins at first breath because God, even in Adam, God breathed life into him. But see, they're using that word breath as if it's a literal breath of air, but it's not. It is the Holy Spirit. It is the spirit that has breathed into man. And, and, and some may ask, you say, well, now, does that mean that Adam received the Holy Spirit in the same way that they did uh, on, the, on the day of Pentecost in the upper room? And the, the answer is he did receive the Holy Spirit, but no, it's not like it was in the upper room uh, for, for, for multiple reasons. Number one, uh, Adam doesn't need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He, he doesn't need to be empowered. He doesn't need sanctification because he hasn't sinned. This is long before sin enters the world. So, so it's not the same, but, but it is, it, it, we need to understand, it is a gifting of the Holy Spirit. See, we, we don't realize, we, we, we under, need to understand that the Holy Spirit is the giver of life. And if someone is alive, the presence of the Holy Spirit is there and active in their life. And we say, well, the Holy Spirit was removed from them. Not, not literally, because if the Holy Spirit was removed completely from you, you cannot exist. That's the whole point of what's going on here. So we see here that the Holy Spirit is the giver of life. Now, now, that, now here's the thing. That sort of gives us an initial sense of who the Holy Spirit is, but it's going to lead us into some, seeing some things uh, that, that's going to happen a little bit later on. I want, to, I want to say this. I probably should have said this earlier, but I want to add this in here. That, that I want to deal with something that would... We would probably not have to deal with this at all with anyone else but Pentecostals. But it's the issue, and some people get worked up about this. So we, I feel like I just want to deal with it right now, get it over with. But it's the issue of whether or not you should, whether you should say Holy Spirit 
or Holy Ghost. Uh, okay, let me just say, there is absolutely no difference. But, but sometimes people that are a little more to the traditional side, they feel like somehow or another if you're liberal, you're liberal if you say Holy Spirit. It's kind of strange. But, but if you call Him the Holy Ghost, that's perfectly acceptable to say because sometimes the Bible calls Him the Holy Ghost. Sometimes it calls Him the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it calls Him the Spirit of God. Sometimes it calls Him the Spirit of Christ. Sometimes it calls Him the Spirit of Righteousness. Sometimes it just calls Him the Spirit. However, it's all the same. It's all the same. There's no distinction between the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit. So don't get caught up in that. Don't get caught up in quibbling over non-essentials. And that's what we tend to do, and that's what a lot of people who want to argue, that's what they want to do. They want to get caught up in non-essentials because if, we can get you, if they can get you caught up in non-essentials, then they don't have to deal with the essentials in their own life. See, so, I mean, it's like I heard of a guy that went to a preacher, and, and he had a book that he had written. And he wanted this preacher to read his book. And the, the, the preacher looked at it and, and it, was, it looked like it was like 300 pages long. And, and he, he asked the preacher, he said, would you read this book? And the preacher said, uh, and I can just imagine, you know, it wasn't me, but I can just imagine the apprehension that comes to your mind. Because uh, usually when someone comes up with something like that out of the blue, it's, you, you just don't know what you're going to hear. But, but he said, well, tell me what it's all about. And the guy looked at him and he said, it's a book about whether or not people are baptized with the Holy Spirit or in the Holy Spirit or it's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. He said, I hear people say it wrong all the time and I want to straighten it out once and for all. Will you read my book? And the preacher looked at him and said, frankly, sir, I won't read your book. There's no point in giving one to me. I'm not going to read your book. Because listen to me, friends. If your theology hangs on a single preposition, your theology is too frail. Uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit, baptism in the Holy Spirit, baptism with the Holy, with the Holy Spirit. You know, honestly, this is an is a entirely, absolutely uh, idiotic argument and one from which I have excused myself entirely. Just want you to know that, a friend. I I, here's what I'm saying. I don't care what you choose to call it. I want you to experience it. I want you to, to, to you know, it, we get, we're getting caught up on these little things, but, but I want you to know and experience the power of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. All right, well, let's, let's move on. How else is the Holy Spirit referred to in Scripture? So he's referred to as breath and wind, and, and he's referred to as, as, uh, as spirit. But how else is he referred to? In, 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 here's an interesting one because it doesn't seem to connect to the idea of wind, breath, or spirit at all. But he's often referred to, amazingly, as the finger of God. Turn, turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8. We're going to read beginning in verse 16. And I want you to see this. Um, Exodus chapter 8. And I'm going to show you actually a couple other places where, where this term comes up. Exodus 8, 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out, stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become gnats throughout all the land of Egypt. Now, if you have King James, it says lice. Don't get caught up on that. It's just a, it's a difficult word to translate. But basically, it's a whole bunch of annoying little bugs. I don't care what it is. It's going to be a nasty plague. Y are you with me? Okay, verse 17. They did so for Aaron... Uh, for Aaron re stretched out his hand with his rod and smote the dust of the earth, and it became 
gnats on man and on beast. All the dust of the land became gnats throughout all the land of Egypt. Think about that. Think about it. All the dust of the land. That is a lot of bugs. That is a lot of bugs. Verse 18. Then the magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats upon man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. And in other words, if, if you remember the story, uh, the Egyptian magicians, up to this point, they had been able to duplicate, at least to a certain extent, the miracles of Mo Moses. Remember that? You remember all those things that happened that through their own sorcery, through their dark arts, whatever it might be. Moses threw his rod down and it became a, became a snake. And what did the Egyptian magicians do? They threw their rods down and, and they became snakes. And then Moses' snake ate theirs, which kind of makes me think of an Alabama versus Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt football game. Uh, that's kind of what happens in one of those. But the, the Egyptian magicians, to a certain extent, did duplicate that miracle. Right? You, you see that, right? And, and, and the whole point of that was to discredit Moses and saying, ah, God's not speaking to him. We can do that too. So, uh, however, now here in this set setting, this situation, now they can't duplicate this one. And they identify it as the finger of God. They say, this is not a trick. This is not some uh, spell that we can cast. This is the power of God touching this earth in a different way. And, 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 and they say this is a direct action of God. Now, here's the question that, that might come to your mind. Why do we say that the finger of God, that, that phrase there, and remember the word I gave you earlier, anthropomorphism? Uh, this is an anthropomorphic term because he, God doesn't actually have a finger. So it's, a, it's, a, it's used to describe God reaching out and touching and doing something. Uh, why do we say that that anthropomorphic term, the finger of God, uh, how do we know that that is the Holy Spirit? Well, we, we know it's the Holy Spirit because in Exodus 31 and in Deuteronomy 9, which is where both accounts of the Ten Commandments, what we're told is that the law of God was written by the finger of God. So we see the God moving, and this is an example of the power of God, the Holy Spirit at work. We also see it in Daniel. How many of you remember Belshazzar's party where he, he uh, brings in prostitutes and they're going to basically have an orgy in there and, and they want to insult the God of Israel, so they bring in the holy instruments, you know, the labor, uh, things like that, uh, uh, things that they had stolen from the temple in Jerusalem, and they bring them in so that they can drink wine out of the holy vessels in order to humiliate the God of Israel. They're, making, they're, they're doing it to, to make fun of the God of Israel because they said, some God he is, we were able to conquer him, so we're not afraid of this God. And, and it says in that story that the finger of God appears, his hand appears, and the finger writes on the wall of the palace, many, many, teko ufarsin. I have no idea if that's how you pronounce it or not, but that's how I pronounce it. Which means you've been weighed in the balance and you've been found wanting and your kingdom will be divided and given to the Persians. The finger of God. Now, where is that phrase, the finger of God, used again? It's used in the New Testament. We see it again in Luke chapter 11. In, in Luke 11, 
What's happening is Jesus is casting demons out of a young man who has been rendered mute. He, he can't talk because the demons hold him mute. And Jesus casts those demons out. And in response, you'll remember the Pharisees say, sure, yeah, sure, he can control the demons because they work for him. He's in touch with Beelzebub, the Lord of the demons. And so this is how Jesus deals with them in, in responding to that. He's, he looks at them and he says, okay, hey, listen, let's suppose that I did cast the demons out because I'm in touch with Beelzebub. He said, if that's true, then you don't have to worry about the devil because the devil is actually casting the devil out. He said, if that's true, you, you don't have to worry about the devil because the house divided cannot stand. If I'm casting demons out with demons, how, he says, how does that make any sense? But then, he's, then he asks them a question. I love this part. I love how Jesus is so pro provocative in ways that we don't even catch it. But he says, by whom, he asks them, by whom do your followers, by whom do your disciples cast the demons out? Well, the, the answer is, they can't do it at all. They can't do it at all. So, so he convicts them of their powerlessness, of their impotence before the supernatural world. And he says, even if I cast them out with the devil, by whom do your disciples cast them out? But then he says, but if I, with the finger of God, have cast out these devils. If I, with the finger of God, have cast out these devils, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, now that turn of phrase, the kingdom of God has come upon you, is not a happy phrase. This is not the same as saying the kingdom of God has come to you. You know, to, to, to come upon you is the kind of phrase you would use to describe a criminal who's committed some crime or some robbery and the police are looking for him and then he goes and hides in the bushes and the police are out there uh, with their flashlights and they're searching for him. And when they find him, they come upon him. That's not a happy moment for that criminal. Uh, but that's the phrase Jesus is using. If I have cast these demons out by the power of the Spirit of God, then there's proof that the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, he's saying to the Pharisees, you're busted. You are busted. And we see the unity of the ministry of God, the creative power of God the Father, the delivering and, and gracious ministry of the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he, uh, he said, I do these miracles through the finger of God. Now, here's the thing about all of this. This brings us, it really creates a, a fascinating conundrum for us. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of life, the giver of life. He is the breath of God. He, he wants to bring life and liberty and joy. But, but that actually presents us, with, with, when we look at the finger of God, it presents us with an apparent contradiction. And here it is. If the finger of God writes the law and the law would bring us under bondage, if we are under the law, if we, if we keep kosher, you know, to, to, to circumcise our sons on the eighth day, to do all the things that the law, law, law requires, that's bondage to the law. But the grace of God, Paul said, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. We're set free from the bondage of the law. So do you see it? Here it is. Here's the conundrum. How can the finger of God write the law and then set us free from the law? There's the conundrum. Well, the answer we find in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. 
there, there are other places as well, but these are two examples that it will show us. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19. I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. He's saying, listen, it's not going to be about laws on the stone anymore. I'm going to give them a heart of flesh. I'm going to put something inside of them. Then Jeremiah 31, 33, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the Holy Spirit has not changed jobs. The Holy Spirit still writes the law. He just he doesn't write it on tablets of stone so that they fall on us and crush us anymore. He, he doesn't come write the law so that if we come out from under the law of, uh, of, uh, on tablets of stone that we are outlaws. Because our relationship with the law either condemns us to bondage or, or to being outlaws. One of the two. And he says that the finger of God will come and write the law within you. Because we already saw in the, in the Old Testament, the finger of God wrote the laws on the stone tablets. And now he's saying, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to write it in your heart. That's still the work of the Holy Spirit. So he hasn't changed jobs at all. It, it, the, think of it this way. And this is, this is where it's important for us to understand this. The primary work of the Holy Spirit is to recreate His own nature in us. And the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of holiness. That's why He's called the Holy Spirit. He could be called anything. He could, he could have been called the, the power spirit. But He's not. He's called the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 1 tells us that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So the finger of God that wrote judgment on Belshazzar's wicked party, the finger of God that wrote the law on tablets of stone on the holy mountain. And just imagine what that moment must have been like when Moses is there watching this, you know, as the finger of God just begins to, uh, I don't know if he burned it in or chiseled it into the stone. I don't know what he did, but, you know, starts off, you shall have no other gods before me. You, you shall not make any gra graven images. You shall not take the name of the Lord God in vain. Imagine Moses being there and, and, he, and the law came written on stone. However, we no longer live under that law. God says, however, here's, what, here's the key. He does not say, I'm going to take the law away. He, he says, I'm not going to take the law away. He says, I'm going to change where I write it. Now I'm going to write it within you. We're talking about sanctification. We're talking about growing in holiness. So, so understanding this, sanctification, rather than being, you know, slavish obedience to a set of rules, which is what we tend to make it, and we turn it, uh, sanctification into legalism so easily because we make it about keeping our, our set of rules. So sanctification, rather than being slavish obedience to a set of rules, now becomes the outworking in the extremities of our lives of a new inward reality 
Now the Holy Spirit has written something in us. He has done something in us. And now holiness becomes the process of that working from the inside out. Whereas the law was all about keeping the rules on the outside. You know, and that's where we get confused. People get confused all the time. We have to, basic principle, we have to understand holiness never starts on the outside and seeps its way in. And I've seen people try to do that to people. I remember a church that we were at uh, uh, many, many years ago. There was a young woman who came and she had lived, been living a very rough, very difficult life. And God had saved her. She came to this church, moved uh, out of California and, and, and into this city. And, and God was working. But then there were a group of ladies who, who kept wanting to make her try to act a certain way and do, a certain, do certain things. And, 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 but you know what? She didn't conform to that because it would never work. It was, it was something that the Lord had to do on the inside and it worked its way out. And, and over time, she changed and she went from this very hard looking person to somebody, you know, I mean, you wouldn't even think it was the same person. So the Spirit of God has now written something in us. Now, we're going to be talking about in, in future weeks, about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And yes, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is about power. We're, we're going to talk about that. Yes, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is about gifts. We're going to talk about those gifts. However, here's what we need to understand. If we comprehend the baptism of the Holy Spirit absent from sanctification, if we separate it from sanctification, then we have missed the whole point. We've missed the whole point because that's the first thing he wants to do in us is create the character of Christ to, to create holiness in us. If you seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit just because you want the gifts in your life, that is like putting electricity in your house because you think the switch plates are pretty. What God wants to do is turn on the lights. What God wants to do is change us. So I'm going to close with this, and then we'll, uh, we'll see if anybody has any questions or anything tonight before we, before we leave. Uh, but uh, many, many years ago, there was a man who was preaching revival services at a Methodist church. This is back in the days, in the 70s, in the charismatic renewal, when it was kind of, you know, a lot of churches and mainline denominations like Methodist churches, God was beginning to really stir and do things, but not everybody in, in those denominations understood it or were on board with it, you know. So he was, he was a Pentecostal preacher, and he was, he had, actually, he had been a Methodist preacher, but he, had, he was uh, filled with the Spirit. And, and now he's preaching this revival, revival services at a Methodist church in Cartersville, Georgia. What they did was, in their tradition, they had, in the morning, they would have a Bible study that was a little bit more like this. And then in the evening, they would have a regular church service. Well, one morning in the Bible study, he asked if there were any questions about the previous night's sermon. And there was, there was quite a turmoil in the room because he had preached the night before on the baptism of the Holy Spirit in this Methodist church. Finally, after all this back and forth and the people just not sure and getting upset, finally an older man in the room stood up and he said, this. He said, I have something I want to say. He said, what this preacher said is not strange. This has happened to me. He said, I am the freest man in Cartersville, Georgia. He said, I'm a born again Christian, but I can do anything I like and still be a Christian. 
Well, they just all got upset. Well, you can't say that. You can't do anything you like and be a Christian. You can't. And he said, yes, I can. I can do anything I like and still be a Christian. They said, well, well, how does that work? He said, he stood there and he looked at them. He said, 40 years ago at the Indian Springs campground, God changed my liker. He said, I don't like the stuff I used to like. Therefore, I can do anything I like, but I just don't like the same things I used to like. My liker has been changed. That's the process of sanctification. That's the work of Holy, the Holy Spirit inside of us. Writing the laws of God on our hearts so that it works its way out in our lives. The law of God does not stand over us and against us on tablets of stone to judge us the way he judged Belshazzar in his palace. He writes the law inside of us. The finger of God. The breath of God being breathed into us. And he says, come alive in newness of life. And the Holy Spirit flows out from us. Amen. Amen. Well, before we close, does anybody have any questions? Anything I've said that you would need any clarification? I, I anticipate that as we go through, there may be probably more questions that will arise. I don't know if we'll have any tonight, but uh, don't see any hands being raised. So let's go ahead and pray, and, uh, and let's, uh, then we'll be dismissed. Father, we come to you. Thank you for the gift of your spirit. We thank you, Lord, that... He is not just some extra thing that's been added on as an afterthought, but He is an integral part of your work in this world and in, in my life, that He is the third person of the Trinity, that He is the breath of God, and that the finger of God is writing the law of God in my heart, that you are changing how I see things, you're changing the things I want, you're changing everything about me from the inside out. And God, we thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, in the coming weeks as we look at the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, that, that you would just stir up a brand new hunger, a new desire for you. Lord, if there are those that are not baptized in the Holy Spirit, that you would stir that desire up in them and that you would, you would just bless them with this wonderful, powerful, amazing gift. God, I just pray that in Jesus' name that you would just help us. Help us as we live our lives, as we go through it this week, that we would remember that it's about your spirit dwelling in us, flowing out through us. That's what will touch this world. That's what will change this world. And we believe you for what you're going to do. And we thank you for everything that you've done and all you're going to do. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.